0: We're at a rather unusual venue this morning, Um, so it's a Wednesday morning, and we're walking through the grounds of BASF, and we have come to their wine cellar, and who knew they had a wine cellar, and I can hear parakeets. So we're in in the heart of the wine area of Germany, and uh, yeah, we're going in to meet the guy who runs this
1: place this is also a special moment for us because we started this podcast before the pandemic and it's the first time we've actually been together on a location
0: and and this is like being a kid in a sweet shop going to a wine cellar and hopefully we can try some martin even though it is Far only too early in the morning no, but let's give it a go <laughs> never too early for wine <laughs> Welcome to The Science Behind Your Salad, brought to you by BASF. In this series, we go in search of the best ingredients and we tell the stories of those striving to provide the freshest, tastiest produce for our salad bowls. And we explore the ways in which farmers can continue to provide food for the planet in the face of ever-growing uncertainty, pressure from climate change, population growth and now global conflict. And today, we're looking at something a little different. A delicious meal deserves to be accompanied by an equally delicious glass of wine. And so, not only are we meeting wine growers and producers, but we're also talking to the innovators, looking at ways to ensure the grapes grown to produce the finest wines are in the best condition possible before they are pressed. We'll also hear what developments are on their way to ensure that crops can cope with ever-changing climate. But first of all, we're going to take the opportunity presented to explore the depths of the BASF wine cellar.
1: Hello Jane, hello Martin. Hi we there. Welcome in uh, our main stock of BASF wine cellar. My name is Bernhard Wolf. I'm the head of uh, Beers & Wine Cellar.
0: It's great to meet you and I believe your nickname is Bruno?
1: My nickname is Bruno, yes. yes. Oh, well, lovely to
0: meet you and thank you for giving up your time to show us around an incredible collection of wine, I believe.
1: It's a pleasure. Uh, it is uh, really impressive here. The wine cellar was created more than 120 years ago in 1901 for two reasons. First of all, we have beside a restaurant, the Gesellschaftshaus, uh, and there, BSF always uh, hosted customers, partners, suppliers, and wanted to make sure that best wines are stored here for the reception of our guests. And uh, another reason are the employees, because Ludwigshafen is situated in the River Rhine Valley, South Germany, and it's surrounded by 50,000 hectares of viticultural area. And when BASF end of 19th century wanted to attract people to work here, those people who lived around were used to have their own vineyards and to make their own wine, which is not possible here in Ludwigshafen. So BASF assured that there is always supply for the employees and gave access to wines which were at that time reserved for noble and financial elites, the best wines of Germany. But very early we added a, a very good selection of international wines, and you will see there, there is a tremendous diversity of wines stored here. Can we go on a tour of the cellar? Of seventh? course, of course, Great. we have 4,000 square meters and one million bottle storage capacity. So it's a long walk, you will see.
0: We'll continue our tour around BASF's vast wine cellar with Bruno shortly. But first, who was it that first drank some grape juice and thought, this is really good. But do you know what? I reckon we should leave it for several months, and I'll bet it will taste better. Over to Rod Phillips to tell us where the first wines were made. Rod is a wine writer and wine historian based in Ottawa in Canada. He's written countless books on the history of wine. So we should be... Sitting here with a bottle of Malbec or something similar in front of us, Rod, what would be your wine of choice?
2: Oh, you know, it uh, really depends on on the day, it depends on the occasion, but I'm very fond of uh, Pinot Noir myself, I'm a big fan of Burgundy. I get to Burgundy about four or five times a year to to do research and so I spend a bit of time in the vineyards, so Pinot is my go-to.
0: You're uh, so well-versed in the history of wine, and this is probably a huge question. But where are the first recorded mentions of wine, and what was it like? I've heard about Georgian wine and Covevery, uh, can you explain what the first attempts were and what that wine would have tasted like? Yeah,
2: well, the short answer is we don't know. I mean, the first mentions of wine aren't really, aren't really in written form. The first evidence of wine is chemical residues in pottery jars found in China about 9,000 years ago and also in the Middle East, perhaps about five and a half six thousand 6,000 years ago. And from the residue inside these jars, we know that they must have held grape juice. And if they held grape juice, it was probably probably wine, because it would have fermented quite rapidly in, you know, in warm temperatures. So you know, you're looking for things like tartaric acid, the kind of acid that's in grapes, not like apples, which have malic or not like citric, so uh, tartaric acid. So that's the, you know, the first evidence of, of, of wine or alcohol that we have. But then if you, you know, you look at Mesopotamia, there are records of, of wine being shipped downstream down the, the uh, Tigris River and, and so on. So, you know, there are records of, records of wine there. But it's not really until you get to ancient Egypt, you know, about 5,000 years ago, you begin to get sustained references to, uh, to wine. And also uh, with wall paintings, you get depictions of, of people picking grapes and pressing the grapes, making wine, storing the wine and that kind of thing.
0: And culturally, what role has wine played over the centuries? It
2: appears uh, from the Chinese evidence that wine was part of festive occasions or, if not festive occasions, occasions like funerals. The early associations of wine are with uh, the upper classes and also it's use in celebrations and in religious rituals as well. Which of course became important for Christianity. In
0: and Rod, over the centuries, how has the making of wine changed? Well,
2: it's changed dramatically. All wine making is pretty much the same. You you grow the grapes or you find the grapes. You press them to get juice, and then you let it ferment. Once people began to make wine deliberately and to give more thought to it, then they began to add things to wine. So the Greeks, for example, were very fond of adding herbs and spices and seawater and lead. <laughs> Not really a good idea, but they added lead for, for centuries. By the Middle Ages, we're getting to what we would recognize as winemaking, pressing the grapes and letting the uh, letting the juice ferment and then putting it into a barrel or some other container. That's been the process. The actual, actual techniques of making wine have changed quite dramatically. I mean, if you look at the... Uh, say, the 18th century, the 17th, the 18th century. They would depress the grapes and then just put the juice into a vat and then just walk away for a couple of months and leave it.
0: And Rod, the industry is now worth millions and it it penetrates so many cultures and, and nations. When and how did the industry really start to grow into what we know today?
2: It's really in the 19th century that you begin to see large wineries and, and uh, the beginning of, of serious exports. Uh, for the most part, until the 20th century, most wine was made in pretty small wineries. Wine was sold locally. So if you take, take France, for example, which is you know, a major wine-consuming country, uh, most of the wine that people bought was uh, produced locally. You bought local wine because it was, it was cheaper because shipping wine was so expensive. Uh, and it's not until the 20th century that you start to get, you know, the rise of, of big producers, big brands, and, it's, and it's, it's really a product of the 1980s and 90s.
0: Wine continues to be a growth sector, and in 2022, global consumption of both still and sparkling wine was worth a staggering $207 billion. We clearly love it. Back in Germany, my mouth watering, Bruno led me into his world for a tour of the BASF wine cellar.
1: So be welcome in our Tiefkeller, which means deep cellars. As you feel, we have uh, stable, cool temperatures summer through winter. With the help of River Rhine, we cool our facility here. And this uh, ensures ideal conditions for wine storage. Down here, we have a uh, Mainly our white wines, and when you have a closer look, uh, I mean, round the corner over there, there is the overseas department. Beside is uh, 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 Italy, Alsace. Uh, in the corner, Hungary, Switzerland, and Austria. Here we have uh, La France. White wines from Romania, from Belgium, from Spain, from Greece, but. The main focus for the white wines here is on the German viticultural areas Um, and I must say uh, for white wines they are within the very best wines.
0: And Bruno, there's hundreds and hundreds of boxes here. Could you take a guess at how many bottles there are in here or do you know how many bottles there are in here?
1: Um, I mean, I I know the storage capacity which is about 1 million bottles and uh, it's not entirely uh, filled now, but it's 2,000 different kinds of wines and a huge, tremendous diversity. We have per year more than 400 wine tastings, and nowadays wine is somehow inside the DNA of BASF. We are in total more than 110,000 colleagues, which carry this wine culture into the world. After all, A wine is composed of up to 7,000 different chemical compounds. So um, as uh, Richard P. Feynman, the physicist, he said once, the whole universe is inside a glass of wine. So discover with us this universe.
0: I wanted to know what is required from a crop of grapes to make some of the fine wines in Bruno's cellar.
1: For a very good wine, you need healthy grapes. Every berry has its purpose. There are also wines which are made only from raisins. The most expensive wines in Germany, like Beeren and Trockenbeeren-Auslesen, they are made from grapes which are infected by botrytis. When botrytis appears too early in the year, it's an illness. If it appears in the end season now, then it helps to reduce water from the berries. So you create a raisin. And you have a concentration of the sugar, the acidity, and the aroma ingredients. And the most expensive wines are created from these unhealthy grapes. But it's a kind of uh, philosophy and uh, it's a personal choice. Uh, and it's a question of freedom to have the best adoption of technology and philosophy to the place and terroir exposition you find.
0: So what happens to the grape when Botrytis hits late in the
1: season? The hives of the Botrytis goes through the skin of the berry and helps to dry out the the berry itself. It's really difficult to have uh, to extract one drop so you need even the natural enzymes uh, to open up the cellular structures to get some drops of these berries and this is why uh, those wines are considered the most expensive wines of the world if you take the 10 most expensive wines seven of them are Pinot Noirs from Burgundy and three are Noble Rot Rieslings from Germany
0: Noble Rot is the name given to those grapes affected by botrytis, And as I found myself in Riesling country, it was time to head off to meet a grower. Weingut Mesmer was founded by Herbert and Elizabeth Mesmer in 1960 and is now run by Martin Mesmer and his brother Gregor. The vineyard is in Berweiler, just 50 miles from the French border and across their 27 hectares, the brothers produce Riesling, Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc, plus some reds, including Pinot Noir. Many growers and aficionados talk about the terroir, or the place in which grapes are grown. And Martin's terroir, as we will hear, is key to his wines.
3: We have uh, special soils here in Boerweiler. We have schist, we have granite, we have colored sandstone. And what we want to do is to, to bring the origin taste, where the wine comes from, where the grapes are growing, into the wine.
0: We've just driven in through the most beautiful German countryside, and there's been miles and miles and miles of vines that are laden with grapes. We're
3: talking about terroir. We have good soil. We have the only schist in in Palatinate, only 0.3%. Uh, of the soil in pollinate are schist. That's very unique for us. It's important that we uh, produce sustainable and and responsible wines, which don't touch the environment or as less as possible. That's that's very important for us.
0: Martin, you you described the schist soils. What are they, and why are they important to your product?
3: You get a lot of minerals in the wine, so most of the people know that from the mosel style wines and you find a lot of coloured sandstone and chalk and uh, limestone in palatinate, but this is really special. For the Riesling, it's a a special taste with minerals, elegant, uh, so that makes the wines really unique.
0: Once the crop is picked, the Mesmer magic begins. Visiting Martin's wine cellar revealed that the grapes like to be entertained as they become wine. We do spontaneous
3: fermentation, so no additives uh, in it, uh, only sulfates at the end of the process. And uh, that's also important, so let the nature do their work. And for us, we do a lot of work outside to get healthy grapes, that's very important. But in the cellar, we do not touch uh, more as necessary.
0: When you talk about spontaneous fermentation, what does that mean exactly?
3: We do not add yeast. We take the, the grapes after pressing the juice into the barrels and let them uh, do their work. If you put uh, yeast on it, you give a flavor to the wine that comes from the yeast, not from the origin soil and that makes the difference and that's important.
0: And I noticed there's music playing in your cellar. Is, yeah. that, is that for the people working in the cellar or is it for another reason?
3: We are firmly convinced that the, the music, uh, the vibration could be transformed in, into the wine and quantum physics seems to prove us right because they say um, that there's a lot of space in the cells and uh, in the atoms uh, that can hold information. The good vibration of music helps to develop the wine and the good thing is that only um, the information who fits into this cluster are behold. So that's why the Riesling maybe wants to listen to uh, Miles Davis and the uh, Spätverkunder <laughs> maybe wants to hear Brahms. We do that with a, a computer system which is called Quantec. It comes from bioresonance uh, or kinesiology, and uh, in, in our way, we use it to find out which wine want to hear which music. A lot of people think these are nonsense, but uh, yeah, we we believe in that and we believe in the power of transfer and we did three blind tastings, the same wine with music playing and without. And the result was very interesting, 80% of the people preferred the music wine. Of course they talk about more deep more balanced and and so on and, and this is very interesting the technical effect uh is is absolutely uh clear because um the, the the wines after fermentation process is finished are much more clarified so here's an effect that you can see from from the music
0: what a lovely philosophy that is And the natural fermentation is a wonder to behold, and to hear.
3: You can hear the, the, the fermentation pipes, so the gas is coming out.
0: So this fermentation that we see here, this bubbling, this is all from natural yeast?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Everything is spontaneous, natural yeast. And you can see there's a lot of power uh, going out and uh, in in most of the time you have to cool down during fermentation especially when you use yeast you add yeast but the spontaneous fermentation you you don't have to cool down because it goes slowly in a natural way because We can't cool that down uh, and uh, yeah, so we we protect the aromas and it works works really good.
0: Back outside in the gentle drizzle, Martin shows us the special way he and thousands of others control moths that can damage the grapes. So Martin, you work with BASF, what role do they play in your business?
3: We are using the pheromones uh, since 10 or 12 years now, and that was a really uh, big step.
0: So I'm looking at the pheromone capsule, Martin. It it hangs down from the vine, it's rectangular. What is it and how does it work?
3: So the pheromone capsule is used against the sour worm, and uh, it's very effective because we don't have any problems since we use that. And the thing is that the, the sour worm, the man part of the sour worm, will not find his partner. So we don't have any population of the sour worm outside and this was a really important step.
0: So, so the sour worm gets very confused because there's yeah. women everywhere.
3: Yeah, yeah, everywhere women. I think, yeah, it's a dream, but uh, <laughs> if you not find them, maybe it's a problem. <laughs>
0: So the bugs think that there is some potential mates in the area, and as a result, the moths become fixated on seduction, rather than chomping their way into the crop. Here's BSF's Robert Svartlenek to explain how farmers use the moth aphrodisiac.
4: The goal of the pheromone dispensers in the field is for what is called mating disruption. Pheromones are naturally occurring chemical substances that are emitted by female insects uh, and released through the air naturally to attract males. But in this case, by releasing the pheromones in these dispensers that are placed throughout the field, uh, the female insect trace is sort of masked and the males are confused and they stop searching and thus an entire generation is is sort of disrupted via uh, this process. Basically, they're unable to find a mate and they'll just go on, uh, you know, with the rest of their their given life cycle without uh, hopefully finding a mate that that further impacts uh, these farmers' crops. So it's sort of a different way uh, to control the pest uh, in the field. Pheromones are are, are emitted slowly through uh, the dispenser in in kind of this time-release manner so they can be effective uh, throughout the season. They they come in sort of ready-to-use pre-filled dispensers. They, they have uh, two chambers. Um, one or both of them might be filled with a pheromone, uh, depending on the, the target insects. Um, and they, they come with a integrated hook uh, that's kind of molded into the dispenser so they can be hung directly onto the branches of the grapevines uh, at sort of regular distances throughout the field. They're quite species specific. So that means they can only target uh, what's called Lepidoptera pest or moths uh, that, are, that are present in a lot of these grape fields uh, throughout the, the, the globe actually in Europe. Two of the biggest pests are the European uh, grapevine moth and the grape berry moth. So some of them have uh, several generations uh, throughout the season, and that can make them uh, very difficult to control, especially at the different phases in their life. You know, the larva stage, when they're feeding on the fruit, uh, they can damage uh, the fruit or the plant directly, uh, but they can even also leave uh, the, the plants more susceptible to diseases by creating some openings in the fruit. Um, so this can obviously have a direct economic impact for farmers as far as yield or even uh, quality of the crop goes. We talk a lot with our farmers in the market about integrated pest management. Uh, so, so pheromones would be one tool uh, to use. So, mating disruption, right alongside um, insecticides, can help with um, increasing the efficacy of the overall program, but also managing things like resistance, uh, which can be you know beneficial for the near term uh, from a yield perspective, uh, but also for the long term when we think about things like uh, pest resistance and avoiding that. They can be used with without conventional insecticides, um, in things even like organic production, well-performing, and they help farmers manage these problematic pests on their farms.
0: Robert was also keen to tell me about another tool in the toolbox that will soon be able to help wine growers all over the world. It targets, specifically, those bugs that like to suck out all of the juice from the grapes clearly not good for winemaking.
4: One of the the unique things we have coming for wine grape growers, and specifically, they'll soon have access to another one of our uh, innovations, Exalion insecticide, uh, which will control piercing and sucking pests, is going to be labelled for use in Asia, Europe, and South America. So we're really excited about that coming and, and being able to provide another solution for our farmers. In some cases they can damage uh, the leaves of the plant um, and in some cases they can directly damage the fruit of the plant as an example. Uh, so they can be, you know, you know again, have a, a pretty substantial economic impact on, on the farm.
0: The pest control tool that Robert mentioned, Axalion, targets the specific bugs that do the damage and could really help farmers in the coming decades. But what impact will changing climate have on grape and wine production? Wine writer and historian Rod Phillips says that he's already begun to see the shift in production.
2: In Bordeaux, for example, they're, they're now, they're now uh, allowing a lot of Spanish varieties to be grown in a transitional way, uh, but, but that's happening. Climate change is going to bring some areas into, into production uh, for, uh, for grapevines. It's going to be too hot. In some areas so they're going to have to find new varieties and some areas could become just too hot altogether and we'll just have to have to uh, uh, go out of go out of uh, uh, grape production entirely people are starting to recycle water to to reuse um, uh, used water for irrigation choosing varieties and choosing locations so carefully will will help mitigate some of those things because some of these uh, some of these varieties need much less irrigation or or can be dry farmed they don't need any irrigation at all
0: Back in Riesling Country, I wanted to find out what the signs were of climate change. Martin, have you noticed any changes in the climate, in the the heat at certain times of the year. Is there any, any indicator that that is happening here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the term that grapes are, are ripe is, is much shorter. For us, means that we have to go earlier out for harvesting and we have to reduce the yield to get that fresh and that less alcohol wines. We have to build uh, water cisterns and, and water storage because we... I think in the near future, we couldn't use uh, the water from the water mains. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of effect uh, we have, and we have to, to work with.
0: It's clear that there are challenges ahead for growers and producers in order to keep the market supplied with amazing bottles of wine, but the farmers are gearing up to the challenge, adopting new growing techniques, new pest control measures, and adapting by planting new varieties in different locations. The climate may be changing, but the winemakers I met during my trip to Germany will also be doing their best to ensure great tasting drinks continue to be produced, despite the challenges. I'm going to give one winemaker, Hamel, the last word. Because as you'll hear, producing great tasting wine isn't just about the terroir, it goes much deeper than that. So we've just come down into Hamel's cellar, and there are maybe ten big oak vats and we're just looking at a vat that's been renovated and it dates back to
5: 120 years backwards we island. can't say it a hundred percent but I, I would say 120 20 years so
0: and explain where we are in germany and also what wines you produce in this region and what wines you produce here in this making house.
5: So um, we are now here in the Rhine Valley, 35 kilometers in the west of Heidelberg. Yeah, to, to give you a little bit of, a, of an explanation where we are. But this is classical Rhine Valley, where we are used to be so special because we only produced red wine until 1950. We started with the first whites from 1950 onwards. Today, of course, Riesling is the main grey varietal. It's Pinot Noir on the one side. These classical muller I love muller Very, very classic. Yeah. Um, but we have now lots of Chardonnay. We have lots of Pinot Gris.
0: So what makes for good growing conditions, both in terms of the ground that you grow your vines in, but also the season itself?
5: We all talk about terroir, but for me, you ask me. This is my personal, uh, my uh, my personal opinion. The most important um, impact, which makes a wine, which puts on the stamp on the wine, is the human. It's the creator. Uh, it's the people who make wine.
0: Everything <laughs> about you just is filled with love for what you do. No,
5: love is very important. No, really, uh, love is a very important uh, uh, word in it. I love the whole wine industry. I, it's, it's, it's so fantastic when you go to other places, when you, when you make friends, when you... Um, uh, to sit around a table with nice people and have a bottle of wine and nice food on it, this is the biggest moment of peace possible.
0: How has the business changed over 300 years? In terms of,
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say now people can drink wine. Uh, 300 years ago, wine was only for the very rich people. Today, in these days, you can buy wine at a discounter, and it's not even a bad wine. I'm not, uh, yeah. So, so everybody is uh, is able uh, to, to buy a bottle of wine. There are nice wines for five euros, for four euros. Uh, of course, it's it's a fascinating to drink a bottle uh, of Chateau Mouton or whatever. So um, this is what makes wine so nice, the the, the incredibly uh, range and stretchability. Uh, wine is not just wine, it's more. But everybody can drink it now. 300 years ago, no chance.
0: And are you seeing changes in tastes?
5: Uh, I see changes in tastes all the time, Um the society is changing, so also the taste in wine is changing. When you go fifty years back, sixty years back, uh, the wine drinkers, the wine drinkers, very important, yeah. So they, 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 they would have said, "What are you drinking? Rosé? Oh, this is for for ladies, for people who are not able really to know what they want." You understand? Well, you have to decide, yeah. So, so rosé, this is a this is a watermelon drink, yeah. So. In these days, it's super serious. You have top rosés, you pay a lot of money for it. Um, uh, It's a new wave, it's it's, it's very cool when you go to France. Uh, The young people, they drink rosé. Even with ice cubes, it's called piscine, in the glass, they sit beside the pool. So um, it's it's permanently changing, like fashion, because wine is art and part of fashion as well. It's very cultural. At the moment, when we talk now to each other, White wine is becoming more and more popular. Red wine goes a little bit backwards. I think it's more that drinkable style, lighter, more fruity, refreshing, this kind of thing, and rosé.
0: Thankfully, I have some chilling right now as Hamel has made me feel very thirsty. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad brought to you by BASF and Fresh Air. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.